We're going to be in Colossians 3 this morning. We are finishing up our series, Elevate, and we're going to go back to the beginning of Colossians 3. Chris finished the chapter last week. We're going to go back to the beginning. It's like watching a good movie and then going back to the, the first scenes and realizing you missed some clues that were there at the beginning. So we're going to do that. And while you're getting out your Bible and turn to Colossians 3, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. I'm going to tie my shoe because it's untied and that's dangerous. So I'm going to do that really quick. And uh, it's really loose. So we're going to tie that up. So Colossians 3 is a reminder, the beginning of Colossians 3. And really throughout Colossians 3, he's going to continue to remind us. And a reminder is something you already know, but somebody reminding you of something you already know. And in some way, that's what this sermon is as well. I'm going to remind you of what Paul is reminding us of, and I'm not going to share anything new with you likely, but... You know, it's like, it's like my, my lovely wife who knows that I love her, but I still need to say I love you, right? And so I'm going to remind you of something you already know and believe this morning. And we find that in Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Most of you know, some of you may be guests and haven't heard this story. Three years ago, this Thanksgiving, my father-in-law was in a really bad accident. He was in the attic getting down the Christmas decorations before his grandsons came over and he fell through the attic and broke his back and he's now paralyzed from the waist down. In the days after the accident and the surgery when we were in the hospital together for hours and hours on end and he would remain in the hospital for months, there was a lot of fear and uncertainty because we were facing a new world together. And of course he was feeling that even more powerfully than any of us because he was experiencing that in his own body. And so we would sit alongside his bedside talking to him, trying to think about anything else except for the future. And we noticed as we were talking to him after a couple of days that he began to, to say some things that were just odd, things that just didn't make sense in the context of the conversation. And we kind of laugh about that and, and not think about it more. And then he began to see things in the room He'd say, do y'all see that? And, and we didn't see what he was talking about. And it started to really concern us. And so we would tell our, our nurses and doctors about what was going on. And, you know, bless their hearts, they're doing a lot. They're being pulled in a million directions. And they would say things like, well, you know, when you're in the hospital for a long time, you, you can kind of go a little nutty and you just need to get them outside for a breath of fresh air and just talk to him about other stuff. And, you know, he's, it's, 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 really, it's really no big deal. It just kept going on and on and getting worse and worse. I remember every time we would we'd tell one of his caregivers about this and they would do nothing, I just felt so alone. And I'm so thankful for hospitals. You know that hospitals exist in large part because of Christians. I praise God for hospitals. And yeah, hospitals can be incredibly frustrating if you've ever been there. I felt like we were just getting overlooked and I felt absolutely alone. And so I called my sister. My sister is a doctor in Dallas at a different hospital. 
And I call her and I say, Megan, you know, this is, this is what's going on. And I really don't know what to do. And I keep telling them, you know, that this is concerning us, but they're not worried about it. But this just doesn't seem right. And I'm worried about it. And I'm just kind of going on and on. I just want her to kind of give me some feedback. And she's quiet for a while. And she says, oh, why, don't, why don't I just come by? I said, that'd be great if you would. So she comes by and she comes by around the time her doctor's, our doctor is making rounds. And she just sits in the corner of the room and just listens I tell him again, listen, this isn't right. This isn't him. This is abnormal. Something's wrong. He just kind of brushes us off and says, well, you know, this is kind of part of the deal and part of the deal. And I'll never forget, my sister just says, no. And when she said no, I thought, yes. She said, no, I'm concerned about this. Because of that, I think you need to check this, this, in this. Frankly, I think you need to move him to the ICU, and I think you need to do it right now. He kind of did this number. Well, (laughs) look at his charts again. And he walked out of the room. 15 minutes later, we were in the ICU. Turns out he had this infection in his spinal fluid that likely would have killed him if it had gone untreated much longer. I'll never forget that, right? Because I felt so alone in that moment I realized I was not alone anymore. Like the burden was lifted from my shoulders and I knew it's going to be okay. And yet we often feel alone, right? That's a biblical feeling. I'm reminded of David who in the Psalms cries out to God, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. That's Psalm 22. There's no one to help. I'm reminded of the woman that Jesus meets at the well in Samaria. Jesus knows her story before she even tells her story. He knows that she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. In other words, her story is the story of a woman who is desperately lonely and obviously looking for something. But frankly, she is not looking for God. She says she gave up on that a long time ago. She says, God may be over there in Jerusalem, but he is not here in Samaria. I am all alone. Jesus himself feels that way on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet even in those three stories, when God feels like he is far away, like he is absent, it turns out he's not. You know, David has an affair, commits murder, and God doesn't abandon him. This woman who thinks she's never going to find God finds him in front of her at a well in Samaria, far from where she thought he'd be and close to her. And Jesus, as you recall, does not stay dead after the cross, but is risen from the grave precisely because God did not abandon him. And as Colossians 3 says, it's because of that resurrection power of God that Jesus will return and appear in glory and we will appear with him. It's precisely because God wasn't absent that we have that hope. One of the things we talk about a lot in our prison Bible classes on Wednesday mornings is the, the idea of absentee fathers. And as we've been doing that class over the last four years, I haven't run the numbers, but I would guess something like 90 to 95% of those guys in Shelby County Corrections did not know their dad, where dad wasn't around. And we'll come back to that, how that feeling of isolation and loneliness leads to decisions that we make. 
But I'm just struck by the way that we sometimes tell the story of God as though God himself is an absentee dad. He's gone when we most need him, that he's distant and far apart from us. We use words like separation to describe our relationship with God. And that's a biblical word. That's a biblical idea that shows up in Ephesians 4. But the way we use it seems almost to to spread the gap between us and God. Whereas when I read scripture, it seems like, yes, our sin creates this distance between us and God. But the whole story of scripture is the way that God overcomes that distance and comes back to us. He refuses to be separated from us. You know, our language of separation really comes from the earliest story in Scripture of Adam and Eve. You remember that story, these first humans who sin because of their disobedience, their sin, God sends them out of the garden. So yes, there's a consequence for their sin. But the way we tell the story is almost like, you know, Adam and Eve pack up the minivan and they drive out of the garden and God's there closing the garage door, waving goodbye. God doesn't stay in the garden. Like that's the fallacy in the way we tell the story. God doesn't stay in the garden. He goes with them. And we know that because he's there in the very next story when Cain kills Abel. God's on the scene. And then Cain kills Abel. And we think, well, now God's really going to check out. But instead, God puts a mark on Cain and he goes with Cain the rest of his life, protecting him everywhere he goes. I'm reminded of Acts 17, where Paul's talking to the Athenians, these non-believers. And he tells this, this grand and sweeping story of the way that God has orchestrated the world so that his people would reach out to him. This is what he said. God did all of this so that they, his people, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. He's saying no one's truly far from God. You know, they may feel that God is absent. Even Jesus felt that way at one moment. But in truth, God is not far from any one of us. Let's return to our text for today, back to the beginning of Colossians 3. Will you look at it again with me and maybe look at it with with fresh eyes now? Ask yourself, what sticks out to me in this passage? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, here's something to think about. When you look at this passage, what do you focus on initially? Let me take a guess, because it's what I focus on initially, too. Um, and to help you understand why I would guess what I'm going to guess, let me give you this example. When you, like, when you buy something you've got to put together, maybe it's a piece of furniture from Ikea, it's a toy for your kid, and it's got an instruction manual, what do you read first? Okay. If you're like me, you probably do not read the stuff about the warranty, the stuff about the company and their great track record, about the helpline or the hotline. What do you do? You skip to step one. You don't even want to know what pieces you have. You just go to step one. You'll find the pieces later. 
Okay, and sometimes that's how we treat Scripture too, like it's this instruction manual. And if it's an instruction manual, what am I looking for? Well, I'm looking for what I'm supposed to do. And when I look at this text that way, what sticks out to me is what you'll see behind me, right? You should set your hearts on things above and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You don't even need the rest of that stuff. And I, if I was going to preach a sermon on those two things, it, it'd be a great sermon, probably better than this one. Right? I'd say, uh, what's your mind and your heart set on? Well, what, what are you doing to set your, your heart and mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things? You know, I'd ask, you know, how much time, well, your screen time report that you get at the end of the week on your phone, how much time is on that screen time report? I mean, how much time this week did you spend worrying about your fantasy football team? or work, or bills, or tests. And I want you to compare that to the amount of time you spent in the Word and the amount of time you spent in prayer. And you would compare those two and you would realize you, like me, spent a lot more time over here than in the Word. And you'd feel guilty about that. And so you would leave this morning with this resolve, I'm going to set my mind on things above. And you'd make it about 10 minutes. Then you get to a stoplight. And even though you shouldn't, you'd pull out your phone. All right, that's how we, what, how we look at the text when we consider it an instruction manual. We look for what we're supposed to do. But that is to totally miss the point of this text. Yes, Paul wants us to set our minds and hearts on things above. But look at what he says. Look what he surrounds those instructions with. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Okay, Paul's grounding this whole passage in really all of chapter 3, okay? Not in what we are supposed to do, but in who we are. Or more precisely, in where we are. Okay, let me, let me explain. All right, leave this, if you wouldn't mind throwing that passage back up on the screen. I want you all to look at this with me. Let's work, work our way through it quickly here. First, who's he talking to? Okay, well, as Paul tells us in Acts 17, everyone in this world is closer to God than they think. He is not far. But in Colossians 3, and really in chapters 1 and 2, again, he's just reminding us of something he's already said in 3. But in Colossians 3, he's making this turn that I'm not talking about everybody in the world. I'm talking specifically to those who have been raised with Christ. In Colossians 2, that's those who have been baptized, who have died with Christ in baptism. And then by the resurrection of power of God, been brought back to life. Okay, What he's saying is, it is the fact that you are risen with God that enables you to set your mind and hearts on things above. It's not the other way around. You don't set your heart on things above, and because of that, God decides, I'm going to raise him. It's because you have been raised that you can set your mind on things above. So firstly, it's who you are. But then secondly, he repeats, set your hearts on things above. And he says, why? And this time, the why is not a who. It's not who you are, but it's where you are. He says, set your hearts, on th- or your mind, secondly, on things above, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. In other words, right now, in this moment, and in every moment, you are in God. You are not separated from God. 
you are hidden with Christ in God. So it's not only who you are that determines what you do, it's where you are. And where you are is in Christ, in God. Um, A.W. Tozer gives this analogy about Colossians 3, and I've used this before, but it's so good, I, I've got to repeat it, right? He says, and when we think about ourselves being filled with God, what we tend to think about is something like a bucket filled with water. And sometimes that bucket even overflows and God pours out of us, but we're filled with God like that. And Tozer says, it's nothing like that at all. He says, we are filled with God like a bucket that is submerged into the deepest parts of the ocean. That we're not only filled with God, but we are surrounded and consumed by, pressed in upon the power and might and presence of the holy God. Our whole lives are hidden with Christ and God like a bucket hidden in the deepest parts of the ocean. Or let's, let's use a modern example to go back to, to cell phones. You ever, you ever get lost? You pull out your phone. What do you do? You press that little arrow and it tells you where you are. The GPS locates you where you are. How did we get anywhere before we had, before we had phones, right? You had to know where you were going. You press that little, and it locates you, but sometimes it locates you and it's so close you really can't get a bearing of where you are. And being hidden with Christ and God is like locating yourself and then zooming out and zooming out and zooming out. And it doesn't matter how far out you go, wherever you go, you are hidden with Christ and God. In other words, God is never absent and you are never alone. You're never alone. Okay, Eric, so what? So what? Okay, well, that's what Colossians 3 is about. It's about the so what of who and where you are. And Paul continues to ground what we do, the so what, in who we are throughout this chapter. I think the reason is we act the way that we feel. And if we feel alone, we act that way. We create more loneliness, more isolation, more hurt in the world if that's the way we feel, lonely and isolated. Richard Rohr puts it like this. He says, our primary and self-destructive illusion is that we are separate and alone. This is the true basis, motivation, and loneliness that leads to all sin. I mean, do you see the order there? He's saying that the reason we sin is because we feel alone. Now go back to those guys in prison, most of whom did not know their father. I mean, doesn't it make some sense why they've made the choices they made? I'm not, I'm not encouraging those choices. I'm not validating those choices. But every one of those guys would tell you, I felt totally alone growing up. And most still feel alone right now. And think about your own life. We're not just talking about guys in prison. Think about you. When have been the times you have acted out? When the times you've done things you regret? It's those times you felt totally alone. Because when we feel surrounded and comforted and at peace and in the presence of God, we don't act out. We act in love because we feel love. We comfort because we feel comforted. We make peace because we're with the, the peacemaker. Many of you have read Oswald Chambers' you know, incredible devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. How many of you have read, read that book? Yeah, it's great. You should read it. About Colossians 3, he says this. He says, we talk as if living a a sanctified life 
So the life where you've set your heart on things above, the life where you've put off the things of this world and put on the things of God. He says, we talk as if living a sanctified life were the most uncertain and insecure thing we could do. Yet it is the most secure thing possible because it has the almighty God in and behind it. The most dangerous and unsure thing is to try to live without God. Okay, we're not alone. And because we're not alone, that's what changes everything. Many of you know Wade Smith. He's a member here, a friend of mine. Um, you probably know about Wade if you know him, that he lost his arm in an industrial accident in the mid-90s. I had lunch with Wade uh, this past week, and he, he told me that story and kind of walked me through kind of what happened since how he saw God in that process. He said, Eric, there's a more important story I want to tell you. He said it happened a few years before. It was in the late 80s. He was a young man, Wade, at this point. His father was in his late 50s. And his father went into the hospital, and I don't recall the exact reason, but, but not something terribly serious. His father goes into the hospital and unexpectedly there in the hospital has a, has a heart attack and passes. And Wade's mom calls him in the middle of the night, tells him the news. And he said, Eric, I'll never forget the feeling when she called, it was like I was out of control of my own body. So my heart was racing. I was pacing up and down the house. He said, I was totally out of control. I was scaring myself. It was at that moment his wife came to him and trying to calm him down. And she said, let's pray together. And he said, Eric, frankly, we, we didn't pray together a lot to that point. But I didn't know what else to do. And so I laid beside her on the bed and we began to pray together. And he said, when we started praying, I'll never forget it. It was like this, like this warm, heavy blanket was just laying on top of me. He said, it started on my head and then it was just like it was dropped on me, on my whole body. He said, it consumed me and wrapped me up. And I fell asleep. He said, I'll never forget that. And then he was describing this story in the 90s of losing his arm. And even after losing his arm, he remains calm. He's directing people about what to do to go take care of his wife and kids. And he's talking to the nurses and doctors in the hospital. And it just struck me that he lost his arm, but he didn't lose his mind. And why? And he said, Eric, I guess I still felt that blanket around me. The moment you realize you are not alone, it changes everything. It changes what you do. It changes how you treat people. It changes how you experience this world if you believe you are not alone. And this morning I said I was just going to remind you of something. This is it. You're not alone. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it does not matter where you go, you will never be alone. And because of that, when Christ appears, Christ who is your life, you will appear with him in glory. So set your mind and hearts on things above, 
because you're not alone. Thanks be to God. Let's stand and sing together. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen one. I believe.